And welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my co-host Derek Davison. Derek, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, it's a little little balmy here. Uh, I guess we'll get into that in a minute, but uh, <laughs> a little balmy here in the D.C. area. So uh, you know that fits with the theme of uh, this week's episode. Yeah, what we'll be going into, and I mean, I think the deep state might be might be seeking to separate American prestige. They could already recognize our power. I mean, the fact is, both of us were initially invited to the Obama birthday, but then I was disinvited, and Derek's invitation was uh, was kept going. Uh, well, I I'm not really at liberty to talk about it. It was a it was a fun time. Uh, we we you know we did a did a couple drone strikes and uh, you know a little uh, had a little action there, but. Uh, I, I can't really go into detail. Well, it's good that it was, of course, a summer a summer party because you know it looks like summer's just going to be all the time now. The, well, the... <laughs> yeah, really. When's when is it not going to be summer at this point? Yeah. So, so uh, as everyone looking forward to that. Yeah, as as I'm sure everyone has realized, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a UN uh, a UN body mandated by the UN, uh, I think, to quote provide objective scientific information relevant to understanding human-induced climate change released a report this week, and it, and it turns out that human beings have been inducing climate change. And it wow, turns seriously? out... Yeah, wow. so big big news. Stunner. We're, we're breaking news here on American Prestige. So human beings have been uh, inducing climate change, I believe. Uh, it said since 1850, it's, it's, uh, it's without a doubt, there is literally no doubt that climate change is a human-induced phenomenon. Uh, and that in the last four decades, I believe every decade has been subsequently hotter uh, than previous decades, that there's absolutely no question that climate change is happening. And it's really interesting to me because when Marx was writing, of course, in the middle of the 19th century, he never could have uh, predicted you know, the, the rapacious effects of capitalism. But we could now know uh, without a doubt that industrialized capitalism premised on Total growth, constant growth, uh, all the time, one hundred percent of the time. Growth, 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 growth has literally cooked the earth. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite an achievement, frankly, and I think that we should give ourselves some credit for this. Uh, yeah, uh, we did you know, it. We what did we've been it. Able to do in just just you know one hundred and fifty years or so. I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to you have to stop and and look at your your achievements every once in a while. Take yes. stop. So humans have been around for what about a hundred thousand ish years? You know those dates go uh, fluctuate a little bit, um, but it took us only hundred and fifty years. You know, ten thousand years of agriculture, roughly ten to twelve thousand years. We've had agriculture. We've had you know industrial civilization for roughly two hundred years, and uh, about about in that time, we've basically made it almost impossible to live on this earth. So uh, good for yeah, us. We just yeah, went from point A to point B, and. Good for us. Yeah. Yeah. So that's quite an that, that's quite an accomplishment. So so Derek, has anything struck you about these reports? Has has anything jumped out at you? I mean, obviously, it, it's pretty actually apocalyptic in in a in a real sense. So I was wondering what your thoughts on this issue were. Uh, um. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts based on some of the machinations of the Biden administration this week, but. Um, the, I mean, the main thing that, that stuck out to me from the IPCC report was that, 
when everybody got together and negotiated the Paris Agreement, the idea was to to hit or keep keep under, stay under the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, which is the level of warming at which you know really bad things start to happen. Uh, what what this report makes clear is that. If it's all if the 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 temperature increases only 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's like the absolute best case scenario at this point. There is no, virtually no chance of keeping it under that. And instead of being sort of a realistic target for everyone to hit, it's now the most optimistic scenario. Which means, of course, we're not going to hit it, uh, and we're actually, you know, it's actually going to be worse. Uh, you know, we're we're going to be talking about two degrees, two and a half degrees, which is where things, you know, get even worse, kind of, you know, orders of magnitude worse. Um, so that was, that was sort of the, the, the depressing uh, part of the report to me. Um, and then sort of, I mean, we can talk about, we can kind of go around the world and talk about some of this stuff, but, but the, it was the right week for this report to come out because there are climate catastrophes happening all over the place, especially in the Mediterranean, which is a region that uh, previous research has suggested is particularly sensitive uh, to climate change and its effects. Uh, there's just, I mean, there's, you know, catastrophes happening everywhere you turn, basically. So, Derek, why don't you give the American prestige listeners a tour of the world of climate disaster? What's going on? <laughs> Well, I mean, people. I'm, I assume people saw because they're a few, few couple of months old. But the the flooding in Germany and China, you know, we we saw the heat waves in the United States and North America really earlier this summer that caused things like you know electrical infrastructure in Portland to melt uh, because it's just not you know built to withstand that kind of heat. Um, so there, the, this has been going on for weeks now, but just in the last couple of weeks in the in the Mediterranean especially I mean we've seen wildfires Algeria is now in day one of a three-day mourning period because dozens of people have been killed in uh, widespread wildfires that authorities are sort of blaming on arson uh, it's unclear what exactly they mean by that and and anyway I arson mean, by even God. If they were <laughs> sort of, yeah I mean even if they were intentionally caused they caught like they they turned into a conflagration because the Mediterranean's experiencing a drought and and you know it's prime prime season for small fires to get big very fast. Yeah, things dry um, out. Things dry out, and that essentially allows things to catch fire. It's also interesting that Algeria has you know mourning periods for people killed in climate catastrophes. But for example, in Northern California, a few years ago, when paradise was totally destroyed and all those apocalyptic videos were going around the internet. Uh, we did absolutely nothing to commemorate the, the loss of these people. It's it's really interesting to compare the U.S. to uh, to those things. But I'm sorry. So Al they're, Algeria they're is collateral damage. I mean, yeah, really, collateral let's, damage let's to capitalism. Basically, literally, that's what it is. Uh, um, there are parts of Greece that are on fire also, which is creating a, a, a you know tension politically. Uh, you know, the Greek government is sort of having to respond to people who are angry about the fact that their country's on fire and, and you know and, and it's it's a bit of a, a, a no-win situation i mean it's not it's not like the greek government can do anything to roll back climate change at this point um the, you know the the management of some of these things 
is you know, could be better probably, but uh, you know there there is going to be a political fallout for this that governments aren't going to be able. The individual governments are going to struggle to respond to. Uh, the place that to me has gotten sort of the battered the worst uh, has been Turkey. I feel like the the extent like the range of things that have happened to turkey over the last couple of uh, last few weeks uh is somewhat amazing in the south uh in turkey's aegean and mediterranean regions you know tens of thousands of hectares of forest have burned in uh, that you know and another kind of wildfire outbreak uh you have parts of northern turkey that are experiencing massive flooding uh this is a rainy season for that part of turkey so floods are not out of the question but it, it, the, the problem is much bigger um, and has been getting worse, you know, kind of bigger uh, for the last several years. But they're experiencing huge, you know, heavy rains and uh, massive flash flooding. Um, we learned uh, a couple of days ago that the city of Chisre, which is in southeastern Turkey, experienced the highest recorded temperature in Turkish history last month. Good stuff. Uh, it got up to a got up to a comfortable forty nine point one degrees Celsius, which is one hundred and twenty point four degrees Fahrenheit. Jesus Christ. Um, Similarly, uh, there was just just today. There's a story in the New York Times uh, that uh, uh, a monitoring station in Sicily uh, yesterday picked up a temperature on Wednesday picked up a temperature of 48.4 degrees Celsius or 119.8 degrees Fahrenheit, which would be the hottest temperature ever recorded in Europe if it's verified. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's bad all over really. And, and it's, uh, you know, I think all of a piece with, with what the IPCC is talking about. And so, and of course, these are really just the tips of the iceberg. I, I think over the course of the next few decades, we're going to see these types of climate transformations really affect local politics and particularly population transfers and population movements. Uh, and I sure. just, I mean, we talked, you know, when we talk, people will hear this in the interview later on, but the the Persian Gulf is going to become uninhabitable. Like it is on the on the way to being uninhabitable. Uh, temperatures are uh, unlivable for human beings in the summertime. People are demanding, you know, the demand for air conditioning. Obviously, just for to, to survive that kind of weather uh, is going up in countries that can't, like Iraq, for example, that can't meet uh, that kind of demand because their power grids are, are you know, not up to the task it's yeah i mean it's all over really it's it's um everywhere every every place on earth is being touched by this at this point and it's essentially irreversible and of course in a real sense the 20s and 21st centuries have been some of the largest movements of populations in human history and i think we're going to see that uh those records you know of the 20th century caused by world war ii and the various deracinations of colonialism are just going to increase over the course of the 21st century so we're going to see a, a, a total reconstitution of global politics, when when new populations uh, try to get into other areas, particularly Europe, I think Europe is going to be one of the the major sites of population movements because you know it's relatively moderate. You know, even if Sicily has recorded incredibly high temperatures, Europe comparatively is fairly north and it has a relatively uh, moderate climb. And so I think that people are going to try to get in there, and then you're going to just see a reconstitution of this xenophobic nationalism that we've already seen, uh, and and these. Sure, yeah, I mean, it's already that's already catching on. I mean, that's yeah, you know, part of the 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 
political environment at this point. Yeah, famous, famously in Hungary. And a lot of that, I think, has been caused due to the dislocations of capitalism, but also due, of course, to the, the population transfers. And that's just going to increase over the next few decades. And it really does seem, when you're looking at the IPCC report, that you, you it's it, it doesn't seem like a mitigation strategy is really going to be possible. A carbon tax, you know, to use the uh, the preferred <laughs> technocratic uh, uh, fix of what, about a decade, decade and a half ago, is just not going to work. You're you're, what this really requires a revolution in how uh, people um, in the world relate to their environment, and particularly just to put a fine point on it, and people who stand atop of the global hierarchy, like everyone within the United States and within the North Atlantic writ large, you know, we stand atop a, 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 a mountain of dead bodies and extractive resources that allow us to serve as a site of global consumption. Uh, that literally needs to change yesterday for climate to uh, begin to, for us to begin to mitigate the potential uh, disasters of climate change, and that just isn't going to happen. I mean, it's not going to happen for a variety of reasons, but one one of the things that doesn't help is that we literally have a governing class that won't be alive in 10 years. So uh, there's sort of a moral hazard in having all of our major politicians, particularly on the nominal left, being so old that they literally uh, aren't going to be alive to live with the consequences of their decisions. And I think we're seeing a lot of that with just the total inaction uh, with regards to climate change. Like, Derek, what do you think the Biden administration has done? Well, How- this, I mean, it was very <laughs> telling this week. And I would add to, you know, what you said about the coming wave of climate refugees. We're also going to see second order displacement from conflict. I mean, this is going to lead to things like wars over water supplies, uh, you know, very basic kind of uh, tension we, we see across the central band of Africa, increasingly violence between herders and farmers who are struggling over the same territory. I mean, this is, there are, you know, knock-on effects that, that will lead to even more displacement than just the the pure kind of effects of, of uh, climate making places uninhabitable. But the Biden, the Biden administration spent one day, basically, when the IPCC report came out, sort of pretending to take climate change seriously. There was the uh, a tweet from the president that said, we can't wait to tackle the climate crisis. The signs are unmistakable. The science is undeniable. And the cost of inaction keeps mounting. Two days later, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was demanding that OPEC plus boost oil production because gas prices are too high and it threatens the economic recovery, uh, the global economic recovery, by which he means it threatens Democrats' chances in the midterm elections. But this is this is sort of the level of things. Like, we pretended for a day, and then we went back to demanding that, you know, the Saudis hook more oil into the, the IV and, and pump it into our veins. There's no serious kind of reflection on the fact that these two Positions cannot coexist at this point. Like you can't take climate change seriously and be demanding more oil for your car. I mean, I think these people have a literal death wish. There, there's something like death wishy about hurtling toward climate catastrophe and literally demanding that more oil be extracted from the earth, which everyone knows that will that will it will do nothing but literally continue to cook the planet. And so it's a really depressing moment that we're in. And and you know there needs to be some sort of revolutionary change. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like that's exactly on uh, the horizon. Horizon. Uh, so on, on, on- I, I feel like it's it's a death wish, but it's also a sense that we're going to be the last ones to suffer. And when I say we, I mean sort of the elite class in, let's say, the United States and Europe. Yeah. People uh, who listen to American prestige. Suffer. 
Yeah, our our audience, right? You guys are you guys are in good shape, um, but you know, I, I I get asked this sometimes, like, what? Why is is this such a you know? What is the attitude of kind of the DC establishment about climate change? What do they really think? And I don't know. I mean, I'm not you know, I don't get invited to to parties. Uh, Just the Obama I, birthday. From, yeah, just the Obama birthday. But from all outward evidence, the attitude seems to be like, look, this is going to be bad, but it's going to hit the global south first. It's going to hit people. You know, it's going to hit the the poor first. And even when it finally really starts to hit the United States, it's going to hit communities in the United States that are already struggling. It's going to hit the poor first, and it's going to take a long time to kind of work its way up to where the people at the top of the ladder really feel it. And and as you say, a lot of them are old enough that that's just not something they need to be worried about. And, and you know, you can call it sociopathic. It probably is on some level. It's just not, uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be a particularly urgent issue for them. So uh, on that happy note, well, of course, we'll continue to update uh, you all on uh, how the climate's going. Uh, Not well, and that'll probably continue. Uh, But what's been going on in Afghanistan as the United States uh, leaves? Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to spend like we we talked in some detail a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago on our first episode, actually, about Afghanistan. So I don't want to spend uh, a lot of time kind of reiterating that. But there have been a lot of developments since then, none of them good for the Afghan government or many of the Afghan people. Uh, The Taliban have now captured their 10th provincial capital uh, in just like the last couple of weeks. It's been a very fast. Right. uh, And I think I want to, I want to, I want to underline this for a second because you could just see the absolutely total failure of nation building over 20 years. The fucking United States has been there for 20 fucking years and literally within months, within weeks, this entire thing is collapsing. And you should remember that for the rest of your lives whenever someone claims that the United States should do nation building abroad. It's a fucking joke and a fucking travesty. And so many people's lives are going to be worse off and so many people are going to die due to the total failure of this imaginative American project. A lot of contractors made money, though, so... Oh, that's you know, true. I take it back. Take the good with the bad. Uh the there may be I, I, I should say that a tenth a tenth cap, provincial capital fell Ghazni city uh, which is uh, disturbingly close to to Kabul kind of south of Kabul um, fell today and there may be an eleventh that's about to fall I've seen uh, reports that that the Taliban have overran the police headquarters in Herat which is in northwestern Afghanistan uh that that means if if that's true and there's no reason to believe it's not then that means that city is probably on the verge uh, of falling for all i know by the time people read this another five cities may have fallen uh that's how fast this is happening um and it's 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 been a remarkable collapse even for people who were sort of skeptical about uh the afghan security establishment's ability to kind of hold off the taliban without having its hand held by the United States. I think the speed of this collapse has been fairly remarkable. 
it's it's been sort of uh, it, I mean the the U.S. intelligence community now estimates that uh, Kabul could fall within ninety days. Its previous estimate was six months, uh, which is you know not that big a difference, I guess, materially, but it is uh, a sign of how fast things are uh, are moving. Um, uh, you know, people are scrambling to sort of figure out why this is happening so quickly. A lot of fingers are being pointed, as they often are, at Pakistan for uh, supporting the Taliban. And uh, I, I, yeah, you know, it's this Pakistan's is sort of, fault. That's the issue. It's yeah, Pakistan's fault. I mean, this is like a very convenient target. Uh, Pakistan has certainly supported sure, the Taliban, yeah. but but there is a sense, and this speaks to a bigger problem. I think there's a, there's a, a an unwillingness to view these sort of quote unquote proxy groups as as independent actors. Uh, we sort of assume that they're just kind of automatons taking orders from some country somewhere. And we do this in Yemen. We do it in, you know, with Hezbollah, we do it in Iraq and it's, it's not the case. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I just, that's, that's going to be a story. I think that we'll get more and more play this idea that uh, Pakistan is to blame for all of this. And, and I don't want to let Pakistan kind of, you know, off the mat or, or, or be a, you know, defend them in, in some way. But uh, it's it's really a, a smokescreen to cover for, as you said, the failure of 20 years of nation building. Yeah. And it's not to, to sort of excuse what Pakistan has done, but more, I think it's important, uh, particularly when uh, you're living in the United States, to understand and assign causal responsibility. Um, obviously, I think Pakistan had a role in what's going on in Afghanistan. I, I, I think that's pretty undeniable. But I also think when one is assigning responsibility, moral and ethical responsibility, the United States is just the overwhelming uh, figure in the region, the overwhelming reason why why the war proceeded as it did. Uh, and so I think it's just important to recognize that, particularly in a media environment that will do everything to basically occlude that fundamental fact. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to see, you know, the search for an external party supporting the Taliban, whether it's Pakistan or somebody else, you're going to see a lot of blame placed on the like the last six months just the withdrawal period as though that is the the only thing we've screwed up here like everything else has been fine up until the withdrawal uh it's going to be a lot of that kind of stuff looking forward to that coverage um and i think we'll wind up here on a really interesting uh sort of case study a a, a minor in the terms of global politics um event but something that we think uh reveals uh something really critical to the American empire and how it functions. And, and that uh, is what's going on with Mauritius. Uh, so, so Derek, why don't you explain, maybe you could give a little background on the country or just at least where it's situated and what's going on uh, there in relation to these island disputes uh, Mauritius is having with the United Kingdom. Yeah, so Mauritius is located in the Indian Ocean. It's a very small archipelago, kind of uh, due east of Madagascar. Um, it, it was at one time a British colony, um, and it, there's, it was a very interesting story earlier this week uh, in the Washington Post uh, about Mauritius's ongoing dispute uh, with the British government over the Chagos Archipelago, which um, is part of or used to be part of Mauritius. Uh, the dispute basically is that as the the UK was sort of uh, de-imperializing, 
uh, it carved Chagos off of the rest of Mauritius and kept it um, basically <laughs> to offer the largest island in the archipelago, Diego Garcia, to the United States uh, as a military base, which it is. It's one of the, the largest uh, overseas military bases that the, that the U.S. has. Um, and, and literally, and, you could see the archipelagic uh, quality of American <laughs> empire, right? It's literally yeah, on an archipelago. Seriously. Yeah, and so the United States has these sort of pins of bases around the world that allow it to project power. And I think the base has been on Diego Garcia for about 50 years-ish. Something, something like along that, those. Yeah. So it's a and long-standing it's, it's, I mean, base. it's equipped for long-range bombers. It's like, It's a very... For a U.S. military that wants to project power around the world, it's it's a very important facility. Um, the issue is that when you know, for example, when you hear Joe Biden and people in his administration talk about the rules based order or the rules based international order, whatever variation of that phrase they use, uh, according to any definition of the rules based international order, for a colonial power, uh, you are not supposed to be allowed to carve pieces of your colonies off and then let the other part go independent. This is against the rules of decolonization. Uh, and Mauritius has sued in many, you know, it, it's taken its case against the. Uh, the UK to a number of forums. Uh, it's one, I mean, it's gotten, you know, a, agreement from a, a number of international forums that this, this was in fact, uh, you know, uh, inappropriate that what, what the UK did was not right. Uh, but the United States, which is the defender of the rules-based international order, doesn't care. Uh, the UK doesn't care what any of these organizations say, and they don't have to care because they are above international law as it as it exists. Uh, and so, you know, because the US has this base here and it, it prefers the status quo, uh, there the Mauritian government has said it would allow the US to stay at Diego Garcia, but it's also said uh, it would offer the descendants of the people who used to live in the child and were forcibly relocated, uh, it would offer them the opportunity to go back there. And that's unacceptable to the United States. And so, uh, you know, we just ignore the rules in this case when it's convenient and, and uh, you know, uh, say nothing. Yeah. And so it's just, uh, once again, in the long line of data points, uh, underlining the total bullshit about the idea, uh, underlying the total bullshit of the idea that the United States is going to abide by any rules that don't exactly accord to what it wants. And I think this is a, a perfect example because, you know, uh, it, it just shows that a rules-based order would only be in effect if weak powers within that order have some sort of ability to inform and affect what larger powers do. And what this highlights is that that just isn't the case, that the United States is just going to ignore uh, something within the rules if it doesn't accord to what it actually wants. So we just wanted to highlight the case of Mauritius here because it really underlines that structural problem, particularly after four years of during Trump when everyone in the foreign policy establishment was uh, talking about the rules-based international order, the liberal international order, and how Trump was doing everything to undermine it. And literally, within six months of Biden coming in, you could see that the rules are just total horseshit if it doesn't uh, accord with what the U.S. wants to do. So we just wanted I mean, to— I mean, they literally said—the the, the Biden administration has, has literally said, or the United States has said— uh, you know, multiple occasions that these these rulings, like there was one at the International Court of Justice, and uh, the but the United States has said, oh, those rulings are non-binding. 
Like there's <laughs> there's no reason why they're non-binding except that the United States has decided uh, that they're non-binding. And for example, you know, other cases like uh, cases against China's uh, claims in the South China Sea, uh, the United States I- insists are binding. Those are uh, binding. So yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, those are binding. When I mean, everyone you know, knows that. We want. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just brazenly kind of like, we don't like this ruling, so it's not binding. That's just how it is. Yeah, and that's how it's unfortunately going to be. So uh, thank you, everyone, again, for your listening to your American Prestige this week. Uh, and enjoy our, our, our interview. It's, it's, one of, uh, it's a good one. Uh, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye, Derek. Bye-bye. Hello, American Prestige listeners. Uh, this is the place where Danny would say prestige heads, but I'm still not there yet. Uh, <laughs> Danny and I are very you lucky will to be, be joined this week. I will be. Yeah, I probably will be at some point. Uh, Danny and I are very lucky to be joined this week by uh, my uh, podcasting friend, Anel Shiline, uh, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute, uh, where her work focuses on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North, North Africa. Uh, she's previously been at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Before that, she worked as a journalist. Uh, she's written for, been quoted in more places than uh, I think we could productively count uh, here. Uh, and she is, uh, this is her first appearance on American Prestige, but she is a uh, somewhat regular guest in the Davison podcasting universe. So, Anel, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. If one was to make, uh, you know, I'm a, hist- a historian. We love periodization. So, if one was to sort of start, uh, what do you think is is the moment? You know, obviously, you, the the joke about historians it's it, it's more complicated, and it always started earlier. But if you had to, you know, make a a a, a break, what do you think is a caesura? You know, the moment where, in order to understand um, how Islam and politics manifest themselves in 2021, we need to to go back to is it the decolonizing period? Is it, you know, earlier than that? Or maybe we could just start with World War II. What happens after World War II that we need to understand in order to understand where we are today? Well, uh, a big part of my research looked at what is sometimes referred to as the foundational period, which varies depending on which national context we're talking about. So somewhere like Jordan or Morocco, which were two of the countries I looked at for my dissertation, This happened relatively early in the 20th century, sort of early, mid 20th century, as a result of of decolonization, where the new relationship between the state and the people was established and either laid out in the Constitution or sort of just um, manifested in in the sort of the language and the rhetoric and the, the way that the state legitimized itself. As opposed to somewhere like Oman, which was another country I I looked at for my research, where this happened much more recently um, in Oman, partly as a result of uh, lack of resources until the the development of oil resources starting around 1970, um, when the former Sultan Qaboos came to power. That's where you start to see a modern state being established and, and really starting to insert itself in people's lives. So part of what my research looked at was how you had these existing narratives that were set up about the role of the state, the legitimacy of the rulers, and in particular, the the role that Islam was to play in that state, and how all of that was then suddenly 
became much more important in the context of the war on terror, where you had the United States you know, going after countries like Iraq, for example, for on the basis of so-called weapons of mass destruction, um, and and this this alleged project to remake the entire Middle East in the image of the United States, and and suddenly it really mattered if you as a country could claim, well, no, no, we're we're the moderates. So we saw statements like Pervez Musharraf of Pakistan saying things like in the Washington Post, publishing this op-ed, essentially speaking for all Muslims and sort of positioning them as these victims and saying the United States has to help these poor Muslims, yada, yada, essentially trying to, to in my interpretation, shift attention away from the fact that at that point, uh, Pakistan had been providing a lot of support for the Taliban, many of whom had fled Afghanistan and were hiding in Pakistan. And I think Musharraf was worried that the U.S. might be about to expand its military adventures into Pakistan. And instead, we went into Iraq and and perhaps uh, might have might have expanded further if things had gone the way Wolfowitz and Cheney were thinking or or imagine things might go in Iraq, you know, go in and, and quickly establish democracy because at the time that was believed to be something that was possible um, and then could have gone into places like like Syria or Iran or, or elsewhere to, to again try to remake the region in the image of the United States. So, so all that to say that that countries like like Jordan, in particular, we saw this sort of rhetoric started to embrace this notion of so-called moderate Islam and portraying themselves as moderate, which meant essentially acting in support of the U.S. security agenda of going after terrorists. But it also was very useful for them to the extent that they could then portray Islamist groups in their country as so-called terrorists, and there there wasn't enough nuance in much of sort of the the American public in particular, but also even in the American foreign policy establishment to really distinguish the fact that often these Islamists were the ones who were pushing for democracy and pushing for greater political representation in their own countries. And, uh, but that they were just sort of lumped into this sort of like scary terrorist label. And I, I should clarify one thing. When I say the word Islamist, what I'm referring to are, are a, a political project to try to expand the role of Islam in the public sphere. So that does not have anything to do with terrorists, but it does have sort of this this desired for for Islam to to play a larger role in public life and in politics in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, on a theoretical basis, in Sunni Islam, really, you can go back to the 19th century to the Tanzimat and the the um, the period after Napoleon showed up and. Uh, Egypt and, and talk about reformers like Jamal al-Din al-Afghani and Muhammad Abdul Rashid Ridda kind of laying out the the theoretical basis for how Islam could be incorporated into a state. But yeah, it doesn't really start to have a political impact until you get into World War One and the mandates and post-World War II. But anyway, excuse me. So to bring us uh, a little, uh, I guess, into the present day, um, I want to uh, I want to talk about sort of your impressions of the Biden administration's overall approach to the Middle East. But I, I don't want to do that yet. Uh, I want to start. That's with, a, that's a tease, everyone. Um, Derek's yeah, becoming a, a great right. broadcaster. I'm, I'm road mapping. <laughs> Five weeks um, in, baby. We're already masters uh, at this I'm, thing. Anyone could do uh, it. Uh, what I want to start with is what what I think is one of the most interesting 
dynamics, political dynamics going on in the region. And it's something that you've uh, written about. I've seen you, you know, quoted about. Um, and that's the strained, somewhat at least recently, relationship between the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, and the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Mohammed bin Ziyad. Uh, this is thematically relevant because we just did a, an, a podcast for subscribers last week about the movie Three Kings, and now we have two princes. Uh, so I think we're, we're sticking to the royalty theme here. Uh, that was but, good, Derek. That was good. I yeah, like thank that. you. Yeah. See, I, I, I'm, I'm, You're getting, I'm getting the hang of all of this. Um, let's start with the background and the relationship of these two men and, and how it developed and how significant it's been uh, in terms of defining Middle Eastern geopolitics for the past several years. And then we can get into why they're uh, maybe no longer uh, best buddies anymore. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly, uh, in particular under the Trump administration, and prior to that, I think under the Obama administration, when there there were concerns from both of these rulers about the fact that Obama was reaching out to Iran, had stated his intention to undertake the so-called pivot to Asia, which is now sort of happening more under Biden, didn't really happened so much under Obama, um, and that they saw their interests as aligned. Part of this goes back even deeper, um, having to do with just some internal dynamics, in particular the fact that Mohammed bin Nayef, who had originally been crown prince under King Salman before he kicked him out in favor of his own son, Mohammed bin Salman, that he was not a popular person in Abu Dhabi and that Mohammed bin Zayed was not interested in having him take over after uh, after King Salman. And so he was quite interested in sort of grooming Mohammed bin Salman to, to take over instead and was very influential in helping MBS's charm tour where he came to the United States and into the EU and to New York. Is that and the DC Thomas and- Friedman one? Where Thomas yes. Friedman said he was like the greatest human being on and all on all that guy just doesn't get anything wrong. He's fucking pitching a perfect game. <laughs> He's hitting a grand slam every time out of the gate. It's really wild. So I, I but if people don't remember, Thomas Freeman wrote a column, I think, saying that he was the future of the Middle East, right? That the Mohammed bin Salman is this sort of reformist figure, you know, uh, who's really going to bring the Middle East forward. And I think also just embodies a type of liberal hopes and sort of these strong men reformers that have of course defined the U.S. approach to the world for 75 years, and also, of course, keep on failing miserably and keep on uh, keep on leading the United States to make disastrous choices in the Middle East and, uh, I would argue, beyond. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. No, exactly. And, you know, essentially what's interesting is every time there's a new Saudi king, you tend to see U.S. outlets falling over themselves to talk about how this is going to be the new reformer. And then they're disappointed. Whereas I think in Mohammed bin Salman's case, he sort of knew what were the specific issues that he needed to change in order to try to improve his image in the eyes of the United States. So things like women driving, for example, that's very, it's a you know, clear you can picture it, you know, women not being able to drive versus now you have go to Saudi Arabia, women are behind the wheel of a car. This makes a big difference in terms of how Saudi Arabia is perceived. Uh, 
at least it did until the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, when essentially this image that Mohammed bin Salman was working really hard to transform of his country, everybody realized. And it, again, it wasn't just Thomas Friedman. A, a lot of different figures within the United States were really willing to embrace him and see him as this this reformer. And, and many people within his own country as well. And, and I think what's super interesting here to keep in mind is the fact that the predecessor of King Salman, King Abdullah, is actually responsible for implementing a lot of the groundwork on the policies that now MBS is able to take credit for. So in particular, things like sending hundreds of thousands of young Saudis to study abroad in the US and the UK. And, and now that they're back in Saudi Arabia, they want a different society. And so although obviously Mohammed bin Salman's star really fell following the brutal murder of Hashoggi, he still has support among many young Saudis because they see him as committed to changing their society, as getting off of oil, dealing with employment concerns. So, yeah. So th- I just have a question. So, I, I, of course, I'm, I'm by no means an expert in this, but my understanding is that w- what he is trying to do is he kind of recognized that the extractive oil industry is not going to be able to sort of dominate Saudi politics for forever, that he's kind of sees the writing on the wall. Plus, you have a bunch of non-Saudi citizens who are there who kind of form this permanent underclass in Saudi Arabia. Um, so he's sort of trying to do a Dubai kind of with, with Saudi Arabia. Is that is that a correct understanding to the degree where he might even open Mecca up to non, non-Muslims, right? This has been, there's been like some discussion. So is that a correct understanding or like what is his big picture thing that he's trying to do? Totally. So this gets back to Derek's question of, and it's, apologies for sort of losing that thread. So we'd seen MBZ and MBS working really in cahoots with each other, in particular under the Trump administration and on things like the blockade of Qatar, for example, the um, military aggression towards Yemen. And then realizing, especially as Biden came into power and they lost uh, this very strong ally they'd had in the White House of Trump, that uh, and Biden used a lot of really um, strong rhetoric on the campaign trail and very early in his administration as well, making it seem that he was going to apply a lot of pressure to Saudi Arabia. And so we saw, saw the Saudis end the blockade of Qatar, for example, release, well, high profile prisoners like Lujain al-Hathloul. Um, and now, uh, Danny, to get to your question, we are seeing these efforts by Mohammed bin Salman to try to take the place of, of Dubai and Abu Dhabi as the hub in the region for where businesses tend to place their regional headquarters or where you see a lot of um, as working as an international transit hub. Doha also does this as well. But thus far, we've been able, they've kind of been able to share Doha and, and Dubai both serve that role. And, but Dubai is clearly the sort of more prominent one. And MBS sees Saudi Arabia as rightfully playing that role in the region. And so recently, we saw him announcing things like, I think, by 2024, if a country wants to do any business with Saudi Arabia, they need to have their regional headquarters in Saudi Arabia. We oh, wow. That. Uh, that's that I, I, I wanted to mention 
particularly, and I, I want to say, uh, I think I called him Mohammed bin Ziyad, and it's actually, you're right, it's Mohammed bin Zayed. If any of my uh, former Arabic professors are listening, I apologize profusely. It's humiliating, Derek. How, um, it is how humiliating. dare you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm deeply ashamed of that, actually. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that that one is a big one, the, the, the move to sort of insist that any company that wants to do business with Saudi Arabia has to be based uh, regionally in Saudi Arabia, that's a big hammer. And there's nobody, uh, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no company that's going to say, we're so committed to being in Dubai that we will like not do business with Saudi Arabia, which is the economic, uh, heavyweight power of the, of the region. Definitely. But it's going to be a big lift. I mean, at the moment, uh, I, let me find these figures that it's something like um, in the ease of doing business survey, the UAE ranks as 16th, where Saudi Arabia ranks 62nd. Um, what is that? Obviously, be, do, what is the reason for that? Why is it difficult to do business there? I mean, a lot of it just has to do with the fact that Saudi Arabia hasn't prioritized this. There's still a lot of red tape They're They're just... Big it government hasn't. getting in the way of the small business owner yet again. This is really <laughs> disgusting to see, even in our friends in Saudi Arabia. Well, and again, up up to this point, Saudi Arabia could just really rely on the sale of hydrocarbons to run its entire society, whereas Dubai has not actually been dependent on oil for years. I mean, it still relies on Abu Dhabi, which is still reliant on oil. So we saw this, for example, after the, the financial crisis, Abu Dhabi had to bail out Dubai because they couldn't just fall back on, on oil revenues. And that's when you saw the tallest building in the world, the name being changed uh, to the, the, the Zayed Tower, whereas before it had been the, the Burj Dubai uh, or the Dubai Tower. Um, and that, that was one of the conditions Abu Dhabi had was you have to name your tower after our guy. Uh, because the, that that family rules in Abu Dhabi and, and in Dubai, it's it's a different family. A different family controls each of the seven emirates. Um, so just just uh, as uh, to get back to this this question of of what MBS is trying to do, he Saudi Arabia still has abundant oil resources, and because Saudi oil is so cheap to produce, it essentially just comes out of the ground. It doesn't require these advanced extraction techniques that you see being used in places like the US or even Oman, for example. So the Saudis have pledged that it will be a gallon of Saudi oil as the last gallon pumped in the world, that that they are committed to maintaining this. Which is good to hear they care so about the environment. That's good stuff. That doesn't alarming. sound like the MBS I know and love. <laughs> um, and another really alarming thing about what Saudi Arabia is doing, I mean, it knows that the world is theoretically transitioning away from burning fossil fuels. Very theoretically. Very theoretically. But the Saudis are then transitioning towards petrochemicals, essentially producing plastics and it's again, just, well, you got to add to the gigantic plastic <laughs> Island in the ocean somehow. So I'm glad they're, you know, picking up the slack for us in the U S exactly. And what's, what's so alarming is, you know, we had MBS put together this very ambitious vision 2030, which, which said a lot of really nice things about, yeah, it would be great for Saudi Arabia to get off of fossil fuels and to really prioritize the needs of, of its people and, and focus on, on employing women that previously were barred from, from working in public spaces. That all sounded really nice, but he's already walked back so much of that. And it's already 2021. He only has nine years to accomplish this. And so he has really taken all of this responsibility on himself. And thus far, we have 
as I was saying, young Saudis who support the notion that that Saudi Arabia does need to to transform, and many because many of these young people studied abroad when they came. When, when I was in Saudi Arabia, many many people were expressing this desire for a so-called normal country. That that they're they're kind of just fed up with the sort of social restrictions that have defined life in Saudi for decades, and and so he still has this base of support, but. If he's unable to deliver on these major promises he's made, it's it's unclear what's going to happen to him. And and not only that there would be a lot of domestic frustration and and um, possible unrest, but just the future of Saudi Arabia. It it, it would my, my point is it would be hugely destabilizing um, for for the Saudis for for Saudi Arabia to to fall apart. So on the one hand, while MBS has demonstrated he he is capable of horrific things. Um, it is also important, I think, for the future of the planet that Saudi Arabia be be encouraged and supported in its efforts to transition away from fossil fuels. Most recently, uh, sort of the the uh, speaking of oil, basically the the evidence, the big evidence of of, a, of strain in the relationship between these two countries has been in their argument within the OPEC plus framework over ramping oil production back up from kind of to back to pre-pandemic levels or even beyond uh, the UAE pushing for um, faster increases and then settling for a, you know, uh, an arrangement that at least allows them to pump more oil, you know, if nobody else can. Um, there have been other signs, though, of of strain. We talked about the the Saudi move to kind of put pressure on Dubai. Uh, the Saudis imposed travel restrictions on people coming, you know, going to and from the UAE, which is, you know, a little uh, embarrassing and, and uh, you know, not not the act of uh, uh, bestie, uh, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed's bestie. Uh, one of the things you've talked about, um, and that I think is a, is a very interesting point, is that fundamentally at some level, um, these two countries, while they've shared, you know, the conflict in Yemen, they shared the the cutter boycott, they've shared a, a sort of uh, menu of, of enemies. The fact is that if you drill down to who each one thinks is the re their real rival in the region, it's different. For the Saudis, it's Iran. For the UAE, it's really more the Muslim Brotherhood in Turkey. Um, and that uh, you know, s explains, I think, for example, the, the UAE's decision to withdraw from Yemen for the most part. Um, the Saudis have been, you know, critical of the, the role that they're playing, sort of cultivating separatists uh, in the south. Uh, but it explains the fact that the Saudis have moved a little faster on kind of reconciling with Qatar. Um, talk about some of these other factors that that have gone into stressing this relationship, in particular, sort of, uh, you know, the differing kind of sense of, of the regional geopolitics that, that they have. Absolutely. And I, I think you really laid it out very clearly there that Saudi Arabia does tend to see Iran as its primary rival in the region, whereas the UAE, in part because it does prioritize trade and commercial relationships, has has relations with Iran. Uh, we saw early on in COVID a plane taking off from the Emirates bringing um, me medical supplies for Iran and and just recently a statement sort of mutual affirmations of the desire for for a working relationship between between the UAE and Iran. And and as you said, the UAE is much more concerned about the what they perceive as a threat posed by Islamists. So 
Qatar and Turkey both being perceived as, as offering support to Islamist movements throughout the region, which then motivated the UAE's involvement in Libya, for example. And, and as you said, is part of why in Yemen we see the Saudis remaining engaged because of their concerns about Iranian support for the Houthis. And just regardless, the Houthis now presenting uh, a security threat on their southern border. Whereas for the UAE, Yemen, and, and they remain engaged in Yemen, although less militarily and more sort of providing support to the Southern Transitional Council, essentially because the UAE does see itself as a regional power and, and is working to establish a, a footprint on places like um, the Yemeni island of Socotra, as well as the, the Mayun Island, which is right in the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which is at the bottom of the Red Sea and is a very critical choke point. And arguably, in some ways, even more, much more vulnerable than the Strait of Hormuz, which in fact is, is fairly large. And even, for example, during the Iran-Iraq War, the tanker war, when you had oil tankers being fired upon, the straits were never closed. It, we, the Quincy Institute recently released a paper from uh, Notre Dame professionally Professor Eugene Goles, who just lays out just how difficult it would be to actually shut the Strait of Hormuz and try to choke off the global supply of oil, as, as opposed to the Bab el-Mendeb, which is much smaller, and, and whoever controls Mayun Island actually could perhaps have, have a, a bigger impact on, on shipping just because it's it's a much smaller area to have to control. And so the fact that the UAE is using this unrest in Yemen to expand their footprint in the region does, does signal the, the ambitions of, of MBZ and, and the extent to which he was willing to work with MBS. I think now that MBS is, is trying to move forward with some of his ambitions around Vision 2030, we're going to increasingly see tension between the two of them. But one final note there, I think this actually could be good for the United States, as I wrote uh, in Responsible Statecraft, if these two countries are primarily interested in building up their economic power, as opposed to their military power, that uh, war is not good for investors, or investors are going to be driven away by by the instability and, and uncertainty of, of violent conflict. And so if these if the UAE and Saudi Arabia are really primarily interested in, in building up their, their economic power, that will allow the United States to, to walk back a, with a bit more confidence from the region. I think one thing we tend to hear pretty frequently is the notion that if the US pulls out, that will lead to greater instability in the region. And I just want to push back against that because we currently see a massive U.S. military footprint in the Persian Gulf and the broader Middle East and a, and a very unstable region, partly because we keep pumping weapons and military aid into this region. Whereas if the U.S. takes a, a back seat, as we observed, for example, after the attack on the Saudi oil facilities in September of 2019, because the Trump administration didn't really respond, that was when we saw the Saudis reaching out to Iran quietly saying, we don't actually want to fight a war with you guys because these countries, you know, they're happy to talk a big game when they think it's going to be the U.S. carrying out airstrikes or launching the war. But they don't really want to deal with fighting those wars themselves. And I think that lesson has been been learned even more concretely as a result of, of what's happening in Yemen. 
So that that's really interesting. So what we have then is essentially the U.S. kind of, if it reduces its presence in the region and starts moving out, you know, you you get this type of economic interdependence or these economic exchanges. But that that also, in some sense, seems pretty grim. Is that the 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 choices are you know awful, you know, U.S. dominance of the region, which has all these negative consequences, or rapacious financialized capitalism, sort of dominating um, the Middle East. So I was just curious is it just doesn't seem to me that that even I, I do think obviously as you know the US should should basically should should move out of the region almost totally. I, I would actually probably say totally. But then we have this sort of like uh, you know, now now capital is free to, you know, just do whatever the hell it wants and, you know, further destroy the world in the Middle East. So I was wondering if, if that is really all we've got to look forward to, which is sort of maybe not, you know, SEZ, special economic zones per se, but, you know, the equivalent of them, you know, with loose, loose laws, you know, you get all this finance coming around, you know, investing in the region. So how is that an accurate perception? And then also like, how stable are these societies? Because they see they're incredibly unequal. They have, you know, masses of people from around the world who aren't citizens. So is this something that could just go on forever where you essentially have like a, a, a very thin layer of extremely wealthy people at the top and then everyone else? Well, unfortunately, I think in terms of what do we have to look forward to is unlivable conditions as the climate crisis gets worse. I mean, these are already some of the hottest places in the world. You already have Qatar actively air conditioning outdoor spaces. When I was last there, they were doing that at night. So I, I think we, it's not so much do we need to worry about rapacious capital. It's simply the region is going to be uninhabitable and that will be quite destabilizing in particular for Europe, in parts of Asia, uh, as people just try to get out of the region. Um, so wait, so we basically have 10 to 15 to 20 years of awful capitalism followed by total climate collapse. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Good, good stuff. Good news. Good news. <laughs> um, not, I mean, not to, not to laugh. It's just, it's just absurd. It's so um, grim. We laugh to keep from crying here on American Prestige. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know the feeling. Um, but to your question about how stable are these societies, I mean, essentially the, the level of extreme inequality resulting in, from the Gulf countries' policies of having what are termed expat workers but often amount to, to slaves or, or people with, with almost no rights. Um, their passports that, are taken away, things like that, you know, like exactly. really brutal conditions that people are living passports in Passports taken away and, and often not, in fact, paid for the work that they've been done or that often brought under inaccurate or false um, promises of what sort of work they're going to do and then what they're actually um, forced to do. But the way that that is maintained is through extreme levels of repression and essentially that these people have no pathway to citizenship and they have no voice. And if they express any kind of dissatisfaction, they're immediately deported. And uh, so on the one hand, uh, it's it's extremely abusive, but it's also I, I don't think that is necessarily where the instability would come from. Because because these populations are are really so brutalized, unfortunately, it's kind of where you know you tend to see unrest happening among people whose expectations are rising, 
and and then conditions don't actually correspond to their rising expectations. Whereas when people are truly brutalized, they're just trying to survive. Um, and so my my if I can hazard a, a, a guess about the future of the region, I do think much of this will come from, more from the fact that many of these countries are, are they're realizing that the authoritarian bargain that they've struck with their citizens is unsustainable. And so this is a big part of what we're seeing right now in Saudi Arabia, where I think GDP per, cap, per capita is, is only about $20,000 a year. Um, although we have this image of of the Gulf monarchies as just being fabulously wealthy, Saudi Arabia has a very large population. And although the Saudi state is still able to provide benefits to its people, the Saudis don't live the way the, the Kuwaitis or the Qataris or the Emiratis do, where they really have very little to complain about as far as making sure every every sort of need that they might have is is met and 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 then some whereas in Saudi Arabia you you do have many many people struggling to find work in particular now as the state is trying to expand opportunities for women you are seeing resentments from from young men who think well I could have gotten that job if they hadn't given it to to this woman who shouldn't have gotten the job resentments from young men that's so surprising yeah there's similar know, things happening in South Korea anywhere. Yeah, and that's something that I think that's a global phenomenon. You see a lot of, you know, men under 25, you know, embracing the equivalent of men's rights politics around the world. So and that's going to, you know, young, young, angry young men is never a good recipe for, for anything, really. So I think that's interesting that you see this as a truly global phenomenon. Well, and I mean, unfortunately, this is often part of what countries have done historically is to just send that demographic of people off to die in wars. Um, and so, I mean, I've, I'm hoping that's that's not what ends up happening. Um, and, and well, and it, even in the Saudi case, it's not that the Saudis themselves are fighting the war in Yemen. They've they've mostly relied on mercenaries or a lo- much of it has been an air war conducted with the overt help of the United States, which, again, 75 percent of Saudi, the Saudi Air Force was built by the Americans and the other 25 percent was built by the British. And they can't fly those planes without the help of American contractors and maintenance and spare parts, et cetera. So, just so you're saying <laughs> the, the military industrial complex is out for its own interest. It doesn't really care about the interests of the Saudi people or even the people of the Middle East. Or the interests of Americans, really. Or the interests of America. Well, that goes without saying. Um, so uh, that that that's really uh, that's really very interesting. So uh, another question I wanted to ask, just because this is your specialty, is that we hear a lot about like, and for, again, forgive me if I'm uh, pronouncing this incorrectly, but Wahhabism and the Saudi state. So I was wondering if you could just you know tell our listeners a little bit about the importance of these transformations of religious ideology and how they relate to to the Saudi state. And my understanding, it's a product mostly of the 70s, but correct me if I'm wrong, please. Yes. So Wahhabism is an interpretation of Islam that the Mohammed bin Salman himself has rejected, um, but that Saudi Arabia has invested quite heavily in promoting this interpretation of Islam around the world. And part this is this is what a lot of, of Saudi resources have gone to is some of it through through charitable work, but much of it through exporting their their version of of sort of religious texts and funding schools to be built that promote Wahhabist interpretations of Islam. Um, For example, a Pakistani. Mosques. 
a Pakistani friend of mine that like all of his friends have the Saudi Quran or, or whatever it may be. So it's it's kind of like the Gideon's Bible. It's it's really made its way around the world in a real way. Exactly. I I I. I want to say I started chuckling there for a second because uh, you know as as you said you know uh, Muhammad bin Salman has sort of rejected Wahhabism but not only that he's he's tried to claim that Wahhabism is not fundamentally linked to the Saudi state which is uh, just the, one of the most ridiculous things <laughs> that anybody could possibly say uh, like Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab did his first work in conjunction with the founder of the Saudi dynasty. Like the, it's been embedded in, in that politic and that that's like, the founder from, from the beginning of, uh, you know, going back to the, the 18th century. Right. Exactly. And this, this is part of what sort of MBS's narrative of reform has been. There was awareness of the fact that there was sort of the ruling bargain in Saudi Arabia where the, the Al Saud and the religious establishment, which would, is deeply Wahhabi and, and promotes this very, very conservative interpretation of Islam, that they sort of ruled Saudi Arabia together. And then the narrative MBS was putting forward is that he has constrained the religious establishment and put them in their place and, and has actively promoted, has, has shifted sort of the national narrative within Saudi Arabia. There's a great book by uh, Rosie Bashir, uh, called Archive Wars, talking about sort of the efforts made to to transform this narrative and and even getting at the Saudi National Archives and kind of what it what information is available to try to sort of shift the national narrative in Saudi Arabia away from the centrality of of Wahhabism and the religious establishment. But so. What what MBS has sort of counted on is the fact that to an American audience, they're not going to check whether, you know, it's like, oh, he locked up a cleric. It, it wasn't actually a member of the religious establishment. It was an independent voice who who may have been advocating for democracy, for example, or or, you know, essentially that many of the, the most conservative voices that historically held a lot of sway in Saudi Arabia saying things like, you know, women can't drive because it would damage their reproductive organs and those those kinds of inane statements that were quite common in Saudi Arabia, those people are still in power. He's He has sort of gotten them to tone down some of that sort of language, but the people who are in jail are people like Salman al-Auda, who is a very famous uh, Saudi scholar who is involved in, in the, the Sahwa, the awakening movement of the 1990s, where you did see a lot of individuals in Saudi Arabia trying to, to mobilize against the Saudi state. Um, and so he's, again, sort of counted on the fact that the international community isn't going to pay that much attention to which cleric is it that he's put in jail. And the point is that he hasn't really constrained the religious establishment. He has done certain things like the religious police are no longer allowed to arrest people. And that is significant. And when you go to Saudi Arabia, it, 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 it feels different. It absolutely things like the fact that that genders are allowed to to mix in a restaurant, for example, those kinds of things really do make a difference for people's lived experience. But the point is, he's just using these very symbolic and, and sort of visible markers of so-called liberalization, when in fact, he's really cracked down on any kinds of, of expression, media, free speech, uh, and, and thrown many, many people in jail. And so, and, and in general, this is something that we've sort of seen coming out of the whole war on terror, where if someone makes, you know, if, if a, an Arab government st 
talks about promoting so-called moderate Islam, or maybe they sign a peace deal with Israel, that they're, they're suddenly able to bask in this glow of, oh, we're, we're super liberal, moderate, but we don't grant any sort of political representation to our people. We are, we are completely opposed to, to democratization, and we and often will go after other Muslims for, for having an alternative interpretation of Islam that doesn't align with what the state wants to say is, is sort of correct Islam. And now you talked about uh, Yemen, which sort of gets us into kind of, you know, really current uh, events, I guess. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Matt Duss on the program, and we talked about Yemen, uh, talked about uh, what changes he's seen in the U.S. approach or role in Yemen in terms of supporting the Saudis. Um, what have you seen um, in terms of what the Biden administration has done uh, to either change or not? Uh, what's what the U.S. the role that the U.S. is playing in Yemen, and can you talk a little bit about uh, again? This is something I know you've written about, but the the sort of failures of diplomatic efforts and the 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 kind of framework that they're operating under, which really is kind of inadequate at this point to to reaching a settlement. Well, I listened to that interview. I'm a big fan of American Prestige, and one thing Thank I remember. You. One thing I remember Matt saying was he made the very valid point that the Biden administration does not have the power to end the war in Yemen. But I think on we need to go past that, though, because the United States is still actively supporting Saudi aggression in Yemen. And so even though Biden and the U.S. can't bring peace to Yemen, we can end our support for this for an aggressor. And we can help to push the international community and the UN to encourage a different approach to the conflict. So this this was one thing I wrote about for foreign policy, where I argue that Washington has Yemen policy backwards. Essentially, the US and Saudi Arabia were able to come and say, well, we, we offered a, a ceasefire proposal and the Houthis rejected it. But the point is the terms of that ceasefire proposal were established in 2015 under UN Security Council Resolution 2216, which, which demands that the Houthis give up all their weapons and give up all their territory, which is simply a non-starter for them. You know, I think it would be great if they agreed to do that because I, I do think it's the, the fact that the Houthis have been able to advance all of their uh, their goals through violence is is problematic and and it's very important for different groups within Yemen to be able to come together and 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 move away from violence and pursue a solution through political means. But the point is that it, it doesn't matter what I think, the Houthis aren't going to accept those terms and so they have no incentive to come to the negotiating table. One thing, maybe you could just explain it to me as if I am a total ignoramus. Let's just assume that. What is the United States's theoretical interest in the Saudi war in Yemen from the beginning? And then what does it think it's doing today? Because this seems very strange to me, the entire situation from the beginning. So originally, the... The timing was very interesting because this all happened in the context of the JCPOA and essentially the signal that Saudi the Iran Arabia, nuclear deal for people who don't know the, the joint comprehensive yes. plan of action is the Iran nuclear deal. Remember that acronym. We'll be using it a lot. <laughs> 
So in 2015, as that was being negotiated, that was when Saudi Arabia and the UAE launched military action with with a, a coalition of other of other Arab states, most of whom at this point have pulled out. But and it was very the timing was such that it was it was clearly a signal to the Obama administration that, well, if you're going to make this deal with Iran, we're going to go invade Yemen. And if you're trying to step back from the region, get ready because we're we have we're going to fuck shit up, basically, Exactly. basically. Um, And. Uh, and uh, subsequently, I, you know, as as many rulers who get themselves into war think it's going to be cheap and, and easy and over quickly and a, a nice feather in their cap. Mohammed bin Salman probably thought this was going to be because at the time he wasn't yet crown prince. And so this was part of his his effort to show, like, I should be the next king. I should be crown prince. And instead, it's a, a huge debacle for Saudi Arabia. And this, again, is part of why the UAE decided to pull out militarily. Um, and so now currently why, and, and I don't, it's, I don't know if things might have been different if the Biden administration had quickly moved to rejoin the, the Iran nuclear deal, which he absolutely had the power to do the same way Trump had the power to pull out. He could have gone right back in. Um, that, Perhaps things might have been different that to this point, because the U.S. continues to to be in an adversarial relationship with Iran. And so Biden being the elderly man that he is and sort of basing decades of U.S.-Saudi partnership, basing his thinking on that as sort of like we need to to continue to go with this this regional partner. He's not ready to really exert the pressure on Saudi Arabia that it would take to get them to end their military aggression against Yemen. And and so if the Iran nuclear deal had been reinstated, if the U.S. had rejoined, we might have seen a shift there where Biden might have felt like, okay, we're we're constrained Iran's nuclear program. We're moving forward, perhaps on diplomacy with them. And now I don't need to maintain such a close relationship to Saudi Arabia because I am ready to engage in this so-called pivot to Asia. And, and I do want to walk back my military commitments to this region. I don't, I don't know if, if, if that had happened, I, I think we would be seeing some really different circumstances right now because the, because to answer your question, it's really not clear why the United States is continuing exactly. to support Saudi Arabia on this. It's not in U.S. interests. It, it clearly, I mean, Biden came out himself on February 4th and said he was going to end U.S. support for Saudi, for offensive Saudi military action in Yemen, as well as relevant arms sales. And subsequently, we haven't necessarily seen that much of a shift. I know, you know, Matt Dust was saying he's not able to get into some of the classified information here, but but on the ground, the U.S. is still supporting Saudi Arabia. We have statements from Special Envoy to Yemen, Tim Lenderking, which continue to affirm U.S. support for the Saudi position, which just re- reiterates the fact that the U.S. is not seen as as a neutral actor in Yemen. This is called in Yemen. It's called the the, the American Saudi War. And it is seen very much as perpetuated by the United States, which Yemen is only going to get worse and is only going to remain a a source of great instability moving forward. And so the U.S. really in the region in general, but in Yemen in particular, we don't want to be seen as as this evil empire contributing to these horrible actions by the Saudis. You know, if the Saudis want to invite that blowback go for it. But the U.S., it's really in our interest to to not continue to be seen in that way in Yemen, which is somewhere where we had already we already have Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula operating there. We already have 
attacks like the the underwear bomber that originated in Yemen. I mean, we, we know that there are actors there that are capable and interested in carrying out attacks against the United States, not to reiterate the, the threat of terrorism, which in general I think has been very overblown and has been used to justify a lot of unnecessary policies. But somewhere like Yemen, we do need to think about what do we want our role to be there. And especially under the drone wars that Obama carried out, there, there are, there's a lot of resentment towards the United States in Yemen, and we're only making it worse. So you heard it here first, folks. Joe Biden is not a, a very forward-looking thinker on U.S. foreign policy. We're shocked and appalled to learn. Stunning, uh, but stunning. We've been going for uh, <laughs> we've been going for a while. So, Derek, do you have a final question before we well, uh, I, say goodbye? I do. Yeah, I want to. Uh, as we sort of wrap up here, the the lingering presence in all of these, you know, talking we're, we're talking about the U.S. role in the Gulf and you know the Saudi UAE relationship. The the lingering kind of looming presence in the background is Iran. Um, and it's it's the U.S. kind of fixation on Iran that keeps America in the Middle East. Uh, it keeps the United States in Iraq, where I know, you know, as you've, you've written about the uh, so-called withdrawal from Iraq, which is basically just a, an accounting thing or reclassifying combat troops as something else. Um, the, the U.S. presence in Syria, which is almost as inexplicable at this point, it seems to be, as the one in, as, as the role in Yemen, uh, and yet is something the Biden, you know, people in the Biden administration have strongly insisted, we're not going anywhere, we're going to stay in Syria until I don't know what, I don't know what the goal is. Um, do you think, I mean, to what extent does any of this or do all of this sort of hinge on successfully concluding uh, an agreement to restore the JCPOA? And, And do you think if that happens, there will be an opening for the United States to withdraw? Because I could see it also going in the direction of like, we don't want to look soft on Iran, so we've done the deal, but now we're going to stick around and make sure that they, you know, really uh, pay for their misdeeds and 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 kind of, uh, you know, take a hard line in other ways. Where where do you kind of see that piece of things heading? I mean, it's probably best to be pessimistic when it comes to U.S. policy in <laughs> no, the Middle East. No, come on. <laughs> um, but I do... I do think there could be an opening there. We've heard very clear statements from the Biden administration about their desire to transition towards China, which itself is a huge problem. We need to be focusing on on devoting resources to climate change and not trying to get into World War I think we should China. fight everyone. The American prestige <laughs> position is the United States should at all moments fight literally every nation on Earth, including allies, especially allies. If you blow up enough things and kick enough dust into the atmosphere, it will it will cool off the planet. That's so, true. We should actually just explode things, and so we could block the sunlight. That's a good. We should adopt a supervillain forward foreign policy. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so to to get to your question, I think there would be a space for if in the context of Biden returning to the GCPOA to carry out this this so-called transition to great power conflict, focusing a lot more resources on China and Russia. I do think in the context of COVID that there's been an acknowledgement of the amount of resources that have gone into fighting our, our endless wars and that people are quite quite frustrated with that. And I, so I, I do think the Biden administration is aware that if they really are intent on ramping up towards China, they are going to need to try to reduce their commitments elsewhere in the region. 
that being said, the United States is really accustomed to, as you were saying, kind of fighting everywhere all the time and justifying it as this is necessary for our national security. And I think as we're approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11, there's not been enough acknowledgement of the fact that having our forces all over the world often undermines our security. It does contribute to this, to resentments uh, against the American empire. And that, you know, Biden likes to talk a lot about promoting democracy and the, and the rules-based international order. And I, you know, I think it would be great if he actually, if his actions started to match some of that rhetoric. Yeah, the liberal international order sounds like a good idea. What's that famous phrase? It'd be a good idea if it was ever practiced. <laughs> right. Well, and, and again, knowing that the liberal international order at this point looks a lot like American empire. But instead, you know, he if, if he actually followed international law or if the United States actually adhered to a lot of these international agreements that, that we say we're in favor of, but we don't actually like to be constrained by ourselves, you know, that that would be nice. A little consistency. That's all we're asking for. Uh, well, I think that's that's it for today. And Nell, I just want to thank you so much for being uh, one of our first guests. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate all the work you all at the Quincy Institute, that Soros-backed, Coke-backed, nefarious den of inequity of where I am a non-resident fellow, uh, which is really the only think tank <laughs> in D.C. Uh, that I think is putting out really interesting work. All of our, our, our listeners should check it out, but we really appreciate all that work that you do, and thank you so much for being on American Prestige. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really uh, am grateful for all the work that you both are doing. Thanks, Anel. It's been good to have Bye. you.